All right, we are in the final chapter of James. Home stretch, right? Uh, James chapter 5, just a couple more weeks in this mes- uh, message series. We'll finish up actually in the middle of the month um, with a message on prayer. So again, God seems to know, the, know how to arrange the whole series in a perfect timing for us. Um, but we're going to be talking about prayer. Now, as if James hasn't been up in our business enough up to this point, he decides to start talking about money. I know everybody likes to talk about money. It's not an uncomfortable subject at all. Um, but I just remind you, Jesus talked about money a lot. A lot of his parables were about money. Uh, a lot of his teachings surrounded money. And so we want to uh, address money as scripture lays it out for us. Has anyone ever noticed how your perspective on money changes? I'm not, I'm not talking about uh, being old. Okay, I just shared I'm a grandpa. I'm 50 years old. I remember when gas was a dollar a gallon. I know, I may be the only one. Okay, all right, I see that hand, brother. I see that hand. Yeah, <laughs> I was in high school, but it was a dollar a gallon. Um, and, and I'm not talking about that. That's just time. I'm talking about the fact that uh, $20 at one point was a lot of money to you. A $20 bill, you remember that? And I was like, oh, a 20. And now you're like, oh, it's 20, you know? Like, I got any more of those? <laughs> um, it, it's, it's amazing how over time your perspective changes. For me, uh, it, I was impact. I, I think about back to when Teresa and I got married, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky uh, for me to start seminary there. And we lived in an area um, of, Brook, of um, Louisville that was, uh, let's just say we saw it on the nightly news periodically. Um, we heard gunshots periodically. Um, and you, we looked out our window at um, the Toy Tiger neon sign. It was a nightclub, the Toy Tiger. Um, and the little tail just did this thing flashed back and forth. That was outside of our window. Um, and our idea of a date night was to, to go and buy the cheapest um, piece of steak that can legally be sold at a grocery store um, and to rent a movie on VHS. Anybody? And you're like, what is that? And this is one of those big black things about that big. Uh, and that was our date night to go home and watch that. Uh, that was a big deal. And then, you know, Teresa at that point was, I think she was make, working for a graphic arts company, making like 13000 a year. I was, um, or sorry, 18. I was making 13 as a student pastor, a part-time student pastor, and making $100 a week uh, as a custodian at the seminary, uh, part-time while I was going to school. Um, and I remember thinking we were okay. We were doing pretty well, you know. Um, this, was, this was pretty good. And then I became a pastor. I was 23 became a pastor, I got a huge pay bump to 18000 18000 but it came with a parsonage, a house. So Teresa was making her eighteen. I was making my eighteen, and we had a house. We were rolling in it. We, we could buy like a medium steak now and rent two movies on the weekend. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. I think back to that, and I was like, wow, we didn't worry about money a lot because there was not a lot of money to worry about, right? <laughs> Um, but now money has changed. Eighteen thousand dollars is is nothing now in in this economy, and especially since we chose to move to one of the most expensive cities in the United States. Um, <laughs> but all of us have experienced that, right? If you've been around, you know that money changes uh, the perspective. But here's the thing: you realize it's. I want to make sure we understand it's not objective. It's, money didn't change. You know, a hundred dollars still a hundred dollars. It's your perspective on that money changed, that perspective on that $100. And so what happens to us over time is things happen in relation to money in our hearts. And James knows that. 
James is trying to expose that to us today um, and help us to see that, 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 money, um, that, that money can have a, a, a disordered place in our lives. A perspective, as our perspective changes on money, our hearts can begin to respond to money or see money in sinful, destructive, and demonic ways. We begin to think the money belongs to us. My money, right? It's my money. I earned it. It's mine. And I begin to see the, what it does for me. This is not a neutral act. In this moment, we're untethering ourselves from reality and exchanging the worship of God for the worship of money. We don't say it that way. I've never met anyone who says, I worship money. But we begin to view money in our hearts in an inordinate way, a way that's not in line with who God is and what he's given us money for. Now, as we saw last week in James, it's not, a sinful, it's not sinful to plan for life. And I want to say this really bluntly here. It is not sinful to have money. The Bible has categories for rich and poor. There are righteous rich, and you can go through the Bible and see some of the righteous rich people throughout Scripture. These are people who saw that money is from God. They saw this money as an opportunity to love and serve other people uh, to help those in need, right? That's righteous rich. Then there's unrighteous rich, people who are wealthy, who extort uh, greed, all of that. There's uh, righteous poor, the, the poor who uh, seek to love God, follow God, um, even though they don't have a lot of earthly resources. And there are unrighteous poor who, um, in their poverty, seek to uh, get money um, and uh, even hurt others to do so. James' language here for us is to challenge us. Um, it's harsh. You get it, right? I mean, can really just read through it, but like this wasn't warm, this isn't warm fuzzy language, right? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. No one puts that on a coffee cup, right? No one's coffee cup. Now, you know what verse I'm memorizing is James one, right? <laughs> no, no one's memorizing that verse unless they're memorizing the whole book of James, uh, and and so it can feel harsh, but. Again, looking at it from Scripture's perspective, you need to see there are times, uh, Scripture pictures how to live wisely, how to follow God, how to honor God, how to use your money for God. But if there is a way to do that, there's also a way not to do that, and that's what James is addressing. James is rather than going, here's a vision for how you should be using your money, he says, this is how you shouldn't be using your money. This is how you shouldn't be looking at your money. And so this is the message for us today. Um, we're going to see that love of money can damage our hearts and damage those around us. And then we'll talk about what it means to love God with our money. All right? So love of money damages our hearts. It damages those around us. And, it, um, and then what does it look like for us to love God with our money? And I wanted to give uh, credit to Stephen Costello for this simple outline. Uh, the love of money damages your heart. Our hearts. First crime here that James charged these wicked people with is hoarding their wealth. Hoarding their wealth. They have so much wealth that it's stored up that it has rotted. Right? Um, wealth in that culture um, would involve um, could involve a lot of different forms. Uh, it wasn't like they had banks. They didn't have four hundred one ks. No IRAs. None of that. And so you had often to have your wealth in physical form. And in this case, it was clothing uh, and grain and oil and costly garments and some coins. And in this case, he says this 
This, what has been stored up has rotten. It's, the clothes are moth-eaten. The tarnish indicates how long the hoarded wealth has remained idle. He says, quote, their corrosion will testify against you. It witnessed to the greed and the love of money that was in these rich people's hearts. They loved it so much, they kept it and stockpiled it so much that it was starting to rot. They had more clothes than they could wear, so the moths were eating the clothes that they didn't even move enough to, 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 to disturb the moths. They, the, the grain that they had was piled so high they could never eat it all, but it was starting to rot. The coins that they had had been sitting there so long that some of the bottom coins that hadn't been moved had started to actually rust. This is not a, a, about having money. It was about having a, a hoarding of this money. This is a heart issue. It's an unrestrained indulgence. Verse 5, James says, you have fattened your hearts. This is a heart desiring luxury and pleasure. And the rich are pictured here as giving their hearts everything they desire. Now, I want to remind us, James is not talking to non-Christians here. He is. This book, this is a letter written to the church written to Christians. There were Christians who had become so blinded in their wealth that they, and so self-indulgent in their wealth, their hearts had become so wicked in their wealth that they had hoarded it on top of hoarding it. It's like the, 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 the rich uh, people that have 14 homes, right? Like they, they just never go to some of their homes or they have a home so large, so, uh, so expansive that their entire rooms are wings that they just, I think I went there last year, you know? Like the home, it's so over the top, things are so over the top that it reveals something in them. This is what Jesus warned us of. And you can parallel this passage, by the way, with what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, James's half-brother, said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in things that spoil, rot, or fade, your heart is in things that will spoil, rot, and fade. And that, that corruption will spread until you are consumed by it. When you have all of the wealth you want, you become selfish, greedy, and prideful. When that wealth is threatened, you become defensive and you're willing to compromise. And when that wealth is taken from you, you become bitter and envious. And remember this. Remember what I said about the the, the $100 bill being objectively a $100 bill? This is about your heart, not about the wealth. Now, we... What we're going to see in scripture is this beautiful picture, not of like this legalistic approach where everybody has to act in this certain way about their, or has to do these certain things with their wealth. What you see is it's about the heart. He's digging past the, the, the piles of grain and the piles of money and the piles of clothes. And he's saying, this tells us something about the heart of these men, these rich men who were self-indulgent. This is beyond having nice things, beyond spending on self. This, the word luxury that he uses here has a sense of being delicate, meaning the idea that he has, these rich people had removed themselves from all suffering. Removed themselves from all suffering. 
This is a warning sign for a person whose heart is caught up in the love of money to become so self-absorbed with their wealth and themselves that they don't ever see people, they don't even see the people who are suffering in need. He says this wealth uh, will corrode and eat the flesh of the rich, and he says, like fire. This is graphic, right? I, want, I, want, I don't want to just blow past this. I want us to feel the weight of it. This isn't a, hey, this is something you should consider. This is something you should kind of check out. He's saying if, this, if you look objectively at your life and this is how you have money and have resources, have things, or even desire those things in your life, it tells you something about your heart that's dangerous. So we see the love of money damages our hearts. And also we see, secondly, that the love of money damages others. So it doesn't just affect you. We tend to think, we're very individualistic in the West here, we tend to think it's my money. You know, Nobody walks around waving their pay stubs with each, uh, in front of each other. We don't. Like Wealth was a little more physically obvious back then. Um, but, but you can see it today, Right? Um, but imagine our love of, we imagine our love because our money is private, that our love of money is something that only impacts us. But James says no. He shows how, how this love of money and, and use of money hurts others. He goes, uh, look at verse four. He says, you're holding back wages. You see, the way you made real wealth back then, similar to today, if you, are, if you own Land, if you own real estate and that wealth can build and you can pass that on, it builds wealth over generations. Oftentimes, people in this culture inherited their land, their property, the farm from their mom and dad, right? And, and so they were landowners and they had that wealth. They would put people to work, the poor people who, couldn't, who didn't own land. They had to come work. And of course, they had a farm and they had grain, so they needed people to work. So they would put these uh, poor people to work on their land, uh, working their job. These are people who are earning an honest day's wage. They are trying to feed themselves. They are not asking for a handout. They are working hard. And, and James says this landowner just holds back their paycheck. Just holds it back. You know, kind of like the, the company that, uh, and, and this happens, and I'm going to challenge you if, you if you do this as a, it's standard business practice, but it is unethical to not pay your uh, accounts payable, right? When you've bought something from another company, a supplier, and you're just sitting there holding that, we're going to go net 60 on this or net 90. I know what he says it's due in 30 days, but we're going to go, we're going to hold it extra month just because, you know, we, we, can, we can save that money. We can earn that interest on that money. That's greedy, and unethical. And he's calling people out in this passage for doing that. If the money is in, if you have the ability to pay right now, you should pay what you owe to people. So James is saying that these unpaid wages um, are, are literally sitting in the farmer's stockpile of coins that are, that are starting to rust, right? He's, he, he just likes having some extra in there. And it says that these coins are actually crying out to God as unrighteous wealth. And so that God hears, God hears, he says, um, God hears the cries of these workers who had done their job and were in desperate need. You see, the danger here is when we love money, people will always become tools to either help that or obstacles to hurt that. So we love money, we will either see people as tools to help us love our money more, 
or obstacles to keep that get in the way of us loving our money. And in this case, these workers were obstacles. This might seem foreign to us, but like I said, it happens all the time in standard business practice to not pay your what, what's due on time. This reminds me so much, you know, there's, uh, James was Jesus' half-brother, as we've said. There's so many parallels between Jesus' teaching and what James teaches. Um, Jesus teaches a parable that pictures this perfectly. It's called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, one of the interesting things about this parable, uh, parables are typically stories that Jesus told that were, were not rooted in reality. They were, they were metaphors, they were stories. But this might actually not be a parable because he names someone. In his parables, he, there's no names. They're just, there was a rich man who, and there was a poor man. But he says there was a rich man and there was Lazarus. Almost like Lazarus was a real man in Jesus' time. But Jesus didn't give the rich man a name. Why? Because the rich man will be forgotten. But the rich man indulged his house. He, he had opulence. He had wealth. Lazarus would sit out at his gate. He was infirmed, physically infirmed, and could not even work. And so he had to beg to live. There was no welfare. He had to beg to live. And this rich man who, who uh, had this, this beggar at his gate ignored him for years and years and years, thinking about what he was going to do that day that was going to be so fun or where he would travel or how he would spend his money or how he would count his money or whatever it was, it doesn't matter. But they died. They died on the same day. Jesus says the, the, the Lazarus was taken to the presence of Abraham the, in, in, in Jewish mindset being with the patriarch, right? The great uh, father of, of Jewish people. This was to, to be uh, brought into God's presence because Abraham was a friend of God, right? Um, and so Lazarus was brought to Abraham where he was comforted, but the rich man ended up in hell. But the rich man could see Lazarus and he said, oh, could he, could he, just, could he just dip his finger in some water and tip it, put it on the tip of my tongue to, to alleviate this suffering? And, and uh, Abraham says to him, he says, you know, in your lifetime, you had all the luxuries, but you ignored him. Lazarus, who suffered his whole life, now he will have luxury, basically. And this parable is meant to remind us of the dangers of wealth. That, and that wealth doesn't just affect our hearts, but it really does objectively affect people. When God puts people around us, puts opportunities around us to help and serve other people, and we, we start counting the cost, we start thinking about, well, if I give that, I won't have as much. It begins to corrupt us, and as he says, it condemns us. The good news is, <laughs> and we always want to be about the good news, right? Is that the gospel is not, well, you better take care of your money, or you're not, you better manage your money right, or you're going to go to hell. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that every person in this room has not used our money rightly. Every person in this room has been greedy at times. Every person in this room has seen some good. You remember last week at the very end, those who know the good they should do and don't do it are guilty of sin. There are times we've all known an opportunity to do good. Now, I'm not, just, I'm not talking about the, the homeless person on the street. There's a whole strategy, and you should probably read about that and study about that because that's not always helpful to, to just give money to someone. 
on, on the street. But I'm talking about opportunities throughout our lifetime that we've had that we did not take. But the gospel is not try harder. The gospel is God's come to change our hearts. God wants to renew your heart. If you find in your heart a desire for money, you're, you're setting your hopes and dreams in your life up on making enough money, getting enough money, being in a position of security or whatever, and that it has any disordered place in your heart, any rivalry to God himself, then you need a renewal. You need the gospel to change your heart, to bring you freedom. Because I would say this is... Is anyone under the illusion, reading this story, uh, this teaching in in James 5, and the parable of the rich man, anyone here think that those men were, were, were actually free? Like truly free? No. You see, love of money enslaves us, and Christ comes to set us free. In um, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace, was a was a punk kid. Um, he was. He was insufferable. Uh, and uh, they were on an island, and he found this massive gold treasure, right? Like this incredible gold treasure. And he just, and he's like, I found it. It's all mine. And he dives in, and he's like trying things on and, and, and looking at it. And he gets tired, and he falls asleep on top of the pile of treasure. And he wakes up, and what is he? He's a dragon, right? And if you know mythology, dragons are always tied to greed. They always symbolize greed. And so Eustace woke up and he was a dragon and he's trying to pull these metal bracelets off and, and to, he's like, I, what has happened to me? And he's trapped as a dragon and he starts trying to, to, to heal himself and he can't. No matter how hard he tries, he cannot uh, get his scales off. He cannot get these gold bracelets off and it, and it hurts. And then Aslan the Christ figure shows up, right? And, and Aslan tells him, he says, I'm, I'm going to have to rip the scales off. It's going to hurt. And Eustace says this, he says, the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. When Christ comes to us, he peels away those things that are keeping us from living for him. And that might be money. And that might mean a pain of letting go. But there's freedom on the other side of that. There's freedom. Christ is not your enemy in this. He wants you to actually be able to see your money the way he does. Not walk in guilt and shame about it. Not be fearful to ever go out and eat a nice dinner or do anything nice in life. But to actually see it in a right way where you can do things and be generous and, and like, really live in the will of God, walking with God. Now, how do we love God with our money? Or how do we love God and others with our money? I wanted to give you a few questions. Again, because the Bible doesn't give us, I don't want to give you like, well, you better do this and this, and you got to do this and these things. It's about a framework. So if your heart is free in Christ... How do I begin to walk forward to make sure that I'm continuing to walk in that freedom? One of the questions you have to ask yourself is, are you content? Is your heart content with what you have? Or are you waiting? And you're thinking, well, if I can just get this, I'll be content. Because that tells you what you're trusting in. You see, true contentment in in, in Christianity is Christ is enough when you have nothing and is worth more than when you have everything. 
Christ is enough when you have nothing, and he is worth more than when you have everything. That's contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, uh, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. There's an old saying, I don't think it's maybe ever reached up here, maybe it has, but there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. Right? They just, you can't take it with you. You might stick it in in the coffin with you, but it ain't going with you. Right? We all know that. And so he's saying we should live that way. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what Christ wants for you is contentment, and you have to ask yourself, am I content? Is there, or do I want more? Secondly, are you an owner or a manager? Do you see yourself as an owner of what you have? You own it, you earned it, you made it, you got it. Or are you a manager? Do you see everything that you own as belonging to God? And you have been made a steward of that. Because that is a completely different mindset. If you think you earn the money, then you get to spend that money however you want to. But if God gave you the ability and the means and the opportunity to make that money and you see that and you own that, you go, okay, God, I am a manager of everything you've given me, then you will be, seek to be a steward of that money, not simply an owner. I have to say, this is one of the things my, my dad uh, and mom really taught me. Uh, my dad grew up in utter poverty. Like uh, World War II, he was seven years old. My uh, grandfather died, my grandmother in rural Virginia. My grandmother had four kids uh, raising in rural uh, Virginia. Um, They raised their own food. My dad went to work at 11 years old on my uncle's chicken farm, my great uncle's chicken farm. Uh, Like They had generosity of a farmer that lived next door that would share food with them. My dad put cardboard in his shoes because he wore through the soles as a kid, but he had to keep wearing them. So when my dad, I, I didn't grow up like that. My dad never wanted me to. But what my dad did try to do, and I think did, is instill in me that everything we have comes from God. My dad learned that that food that came out of the garden was from God. That food that came from the neighbor was from God. That job he had at 11 years old was a God-given opportunity. And so he tried to instill that in me. And I want to challenge you to think about your life that way. Not just your money, but your whole life. Thirdly, do you worry about money? What you worry about most reveals what you trust in most. It's true. If you worry about the future, you're, 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 uh, if it's worried about anxiety or fear or being out of control, that's what you're trusting in. You tr- you're trusting that if you can control that, you will be happy. But if you're trusting in money, you spend your time worrying about money, that means you're not resting in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes of the faith, died, a uh, German theologian, died in World War II, uh, was executed actually by Hitler. I uh, was a pastor in Germany. Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry, but in truth, they are what causes anxiety. 
me ask you a question. So years ago, I heard a pastor say this, and it's stuck with me ever since. Two statements. I'm going to make two statements, and, and, and we're going to just do a self-evaluation on this. Two statements. The first statement is, there is no God. The second statement is, there is no money. Which one creates the most anxiety in your heart? Which one creates the most, oh my God, literally would change my entire life. This would be horrible. Be the most disheartening thing that could possibly ever happen to me. So do you worry about money? One of the questions I get and this is a form of worry about money. I, I, I'm not saying in every case, but as a pastor, 25 years of pastoring, I get the question from people sometimes who are trying to think about giving and trying to think about giving to the church. And they, they know the Old Testament tithe was 10%, right? And generally in the New Testament, that's kind of seen as a baseline uh, level of, of, of giving. Uh, 10% was given to um, the priests in the Old Testament. It's given to the church in the New Testament um, as a baseline, baseline, right? But one of the questions I get, and this is true, uh, true question is, okay, uh, pastor, do I tithe on my net or my gross? Do you see why the question itself kind of betrays something? What are they actually asking? What's the requirement? What's the minimum that I actually need to give? That's not... (laughs) <laughs> that's a, you're worrying about money again, right? Now, I know that some are trying to just begin this journey of thinking through that, so I don't believe that it was always the case that when I was asked that. But do you see how it can, it can reveal in your own heart questions about how you're thinking about money? Some of you worry about money, um, not because you're worried about how much you have, but about how little you have, because you are totally financially jacked up. This happens and every time I've ever talked about money at City on the Hill, there are always people sitting in the congregation who are completely financially jacked. You're like, uh, got credit card debt, you got college debt, you, you don't have a budget. Um, at the end of the month, you have like 37 cents left, and you're like, should I be able? To, should I give to the church? Can you give a percent? Can you give part of a dollar to the church? Um, you know, like you, you'd like to be generous, but you're out. You're, you have no money, and you have no control and no ability to get a handle on it. Let me just assure you, you're not alone, right? We could probably raise hands across this room, including myself, that have points in my life where we were like this. We're all like this. So, so don't feel alone. That's the lie Satan wants you to believe. Secondly, we have people who will help you. We have people who, who will help you sit down and, and begin to plan a budget. People who've managed their money well, love Jesus, are generous with their resources. And they would love to just sit down with you. And if you want help with that, on the back of your connection card, uh, you can just write, uh, I need help with the budget and put that in the offering basket later, we'll follow up. Or you can just email me directly if you're like, oh, I'm afraid to put it in the basket. Just email me directly, just me and you, and I will pass you on to that, those folks that will help just meet with you. Maybe one meeting, maybe two meetings, maybe you can check in periodically, but they will help you with that. The final question here I want us to think about is, are you growing in generosity? Some of you might think, if, I, if you had more money, you'd be more generous, right? It doesn't happen. Jesus said who he was faithful with little will be faithful with much. If you're not generous in relative terms with your own money and you have little, then you will not be generous when you win the lottery, right? Did you all hear about that last night? Mega millions, 1.34 billion. That's a B. Won by someone in Illinois. 
Let's just pretend you won that. Congratulations, right? I told Teresa yesterday, I was like, the anxiety that would hit me the moment I heard that I won that would be so overwhelming, I would be paralyzed, right? Because it's like, it just changes everything. But if your first thought is, man, I could, I could roll. Like, I'm, I'm going to spend the next five years traveling the world. We're going to do it. If it, the first thought is about how you would spend it, that tells you something about your heart. If your first thought is, man, I could do, I could leverage so much of this for the kingdom. I could buy Coa Brookline a building, right? Shoot, we'll just buy one of these strip malls down here, right? Drop $50 million on it. And they'll be like, okay, we'll sell it to you. And we'll just turn it into a church. But uh, <laughs> if you do ever win, by the way, um, <laughs> just a suggestion. <laughs> but seriously, like I, I think my greatest joy would be to spend the rest of my life giving that away, just figuring out how to, how to leverage that for the world. What about you? I can't look into your heart and tell if you are generous. But you show me your bank statements, and I can, I can give you a guess. Show me how quick you are to give away. I'm not talking about extra money. I'm not talking about that money that doesn't make any real difference in the way you live, and if you didn't give it away, it really wouldn't change the way you live. I'm talking about generosity. This is something somebody said to me a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. True generosity should change the way that you live. That if you kept that money, you could live differently. I can say that for myself. I think, but I, but I don't want to stop where we are. I, I don't want to stop with, with where I am. I, because again, that's not the picture of generosity. Am I growing in generosity? I'd love to get to a point, there are people at City on a Hill who are two income families who give away one income. There are people at City on a Hill who get a bonus and just give it to the church. There are people at City on a Hill who, who uh, believe it or not, are so generous the IRS audits them. This is a true story. I've had people tell me. The IRS thinks they're lying. They think they're fudging, and so they audit them. They believe you're, you're, you, you just made that up. Nobody, normal people don't give that much away. That's crazy, right? But what a picture of a generous heart. I want you to understand generosity where you are today. Don't think about, well, in 20 years, I could be generous. Think about today. Because 20 bucks to you today might be a lot of money. And that's going to be a generous act to give. Might be 1,000 or 10,000 that's generous. It's relative to each of us, which is why I remind you, I can't look into your life from the outside and tell, tell whether you're generous. Only when you get the whole picture of a person's life and who they are and what they have can you actually begin to tell whether they're generous, which is why we're not digging into your life. God wants to. As we close, we want to dedicate ourselves to be good stewards. We want to dedicate ourselves to honoring God with our resources, right? I mean, one of, the, one of the hopes and dreams of City on a Hill is that we would be known as being a generous church. I think we're getting there. We, the, the town kind of knows that we'll volunteer for stuff. So they keep, when they need volunteers, who do they call? They like, hey, can you guys help with this? We're like, well, we'll try, you know. We can't always do it, but we, we generally try to help where we can. Like the, the summer meals in the park, which Kelly needs more volunteers for. 
So we want to be generous, but not just with our time. We want to be generous with our resources. We want to be a church not just generous with internally, but we try to give uh, budget-wise, resource-wise. We try to manage that well with a finance team and, and, and try to be generous through a, a, a budget and the way that we, we function as a church. But we also individually, in your community group, this is one of the coolest stories I get to hear over the years is how a community group stepped in. They had a member who lost their job and they stepped in and paid their rent for two months, Right? Like just crazy stories like that. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of church that doesn't love money more than people. Loves God and loves people with the money that God has given us. As we take this time to respond and and move into communion, I wanted to uh, just remind us of something God's laid on my heart recently. We don't often talk about the connection between baptism and communion. Baptism is the initiation rite into the family of God. It is the, the, the step into the family, the initial rite. Communion is the ongoing rite. And so if you've never been baptized, uh, I want to challenge you to, to think hard about that for yourself. Um, sometimes, you know, in the early church, they would, they would actually withhold communion until you were baptized. We don't necessarily feel that uh, that way. Um, But there's no reason to delay baptism. And if you're like, well, I just don't know if I'm ready or will get baptized, then I would ask you, you probably shouldn't take communion. If it's you that's withholding baptism for yourself, then you shouldn't be taking the right of those who have joined the family. You've missed the initiation right. So I just share that to encourage you. um, If you plan to get baptized the next time we have baptism, I encourage you to, to take communion. As the, as the body and blood of Christ for you. Um, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. If you're not a, a Christian, don't know where you stand with Jesus today, we're glad you came out today. Um, we're going to have, um, we'll have uh, people that can pray with you over here. If you need prayer, you can stay seated during this next song. Uh, you can sing, you can pray uh, yourself. We'd love to help you in this journey with Christ. Um, but we'd ask you to not take communion. Uh, if you prefer, you can always walk out with everyone who's taking communion and just make a circle and come on back in. I know it can feel weird standing here by yourself. Um, but if, uh, if you are a Christian, anytime over this next song, uh, you can step out and take communion out in the hallway. Uh, we have to take it out there. No food or drink in here. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you gave us the book of James and though his words are hard they are important and they are never aimed to hurt us but to heal us and to help us so I pray that each of us would examine our own hearts during this time and see any ways that we have given money an unholy place either valuing what we have or longing for more in a way that doesn't honor you. So I pray, God, that we would be good stewards, recognizing every good gift has come down from you. All the resources, all the opportunities, all the talents, gifts, intelligence that we have are yours. May we use them well for your glory. We ask you, Christ, as we take the bread and cup to cleanse us and refresh us and make us new again. We all need it. In your name we pray, amen.